So that's the biggest sticking point uh, people have with uh, Christianity. The uh, narrow and, uh, in the minds of many, arrogant statement made by Christians that Jesus is the only way to God. You got a glimpse uh, of what people out there think. It's a little disappointing, but it's the real world. Uh, it's important for us to know what people are thinking, and the thinking is that it's very intolerant uh, to suggest that Jesus is the only way to God. And in today's day and age, the highest virtue, you perhaps know this, is not truth, it's toleration of every point of view, except the point of view that narrows down access to God through Jesus alone. So, you know of this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God. Just about everyone in the survey would say, I agree with that statement. There is one God. But the next phrase is the sticking point. And also one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. So many believe in God. Far fewer believe there's only one way to God. That's a really tough one. But I need to tell you, it is the truth. There is only one way to God. And the God of the Bible has made this pretty clear even in the Old Testament, even in the book of Numbers, which we have not been in for a number of weeks and will be reintroduced to tonight. I mentioned to you the real title is In the Wilderness, and in the wilderness, ancient Israel was reminded in a very striking way, you'll see, by God, that there is, in fact, only one way to access him. So I want to read to you Numbers chapter 17. That's where we are tonight. You think I forgot, but I, I remember. I looked it up. Numbers chapter 17. You could look it up and read along, or if you're more comfortable, then I'll read to you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and get from them a rod, a stick, from each father's household, meaning from each of the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. 12 rods, it said. From all their leaders, according to their father's households. You shall write each name on his rod. So each tribal leader's name would be inscribed on his respective rod. And write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting. Remember, that was the tabernacle where God established his presence in the wilderness wanderings. Do this in front of the testimony, the very holy place in the tabernacle. God says, do this where I meet with you. Verse 5, it will come about that the rod of the man whom... I choose will sprout the dead, dried up, lifeless stick will sprout. Thus, I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Chapter 16, the prior chapter, I'll remind you, was an insurrection against 
Aaron as God's duly appointed high priest. They were pretenders to the throne, and God had enough of it. There comes a time when your opinion, though it could be freely stated, uh, is not nearly as important as what God has already revealed. And so he revealed to Israel his choice, and now he is going to make it even clearer. So verse 8, Moses therefore spoke to the sons of Israel, and, <coughs> excuse me, and all their leaders gave him a rod apiece for each leader according to their father's households. And so you have 12 rods with the rod of Aaron among their rods. So Moses deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. Testimony, the Ten Commandments. Now, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony the next day, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. Thus Moses did, just as the Lord had commanded him. So he did. God performed a miracle. He did so so as to distinguish Aaron as his choice of high priest. And the high priest stood in the gap, interceded for sinful people and holy God. That was the role of the high priest, to stand in the gap, to be the mediator, the bridge builder between those who sin and the one who is intensely holy and is without sin. And God had selected, specified Aaron to be that particular one. The people rebelled. They, like the folks in the survey, had all manner of opinions. Anything goes, just as long as you're sincere. The audacity to think there's one mediator, one bridge builder, one who can give you access to God. And so God himself wanted to lay all that grumbling and foolishness to rest by distinguishing Aaron from among all pretenders to the throne. And this God did through a miracle. And the miracle was to take a dead stick and make it a life-producing rod. The sticks of all others remained cut off, dead, dried up, and unable to bear fruit. But this was not the case with Aaron's rod. It generated life. His dry stick became a living branch. It budded, it blossomed, and it even produced almonds. So by a miracle, God made known pretty clearly on whom he had confirmed the office of mediatorial, stand-in-the-gap, bridge-building, high priest. One person, one person alone. And folks, by a miracle, God made known the unique role of one named Jesus Christ to stand in the gap, to be the mediator between God and man. One, not many options, one and one alone. And what was that distinguishing, authorizing, validating, vindicating miracle? What did you say? Whoever said it is right. Billy, you got it right. It's the resurrection. Listen, if you got the right answer, just yell it out. That is good. If it's wrong, keep it to yourself. That was, 
It's the resurrection. That's the miracle. Life from that which was dead. This distinguished Jesus from all other pretenders to the throne and still does. Listen to me. Is the resurrection based on uh, simply a fanciful, hopeful, uh, unsubstantiated expectation of the followers of Jesus? Or is there an evidentiary basis for it? Let me answer real quick. No, it's based on evidence. It's not a blind leap from logic to faith to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Folks, I did a message a long time ago at much greater length than I'm going to do now on evidence for the resurrection. If you're interested, it's on our website. You could access it there uh, under Wednesday evening messages. If you look up Foundations of the Faith and Jesus, then you'll see information on the resurrection. Let me just tell you now four specific categories of evidence for the resurrection. The number one is the empty tomb. We were in Israel recently and at a place that was a tomb dating from the time of the Lord Jesus. I don't know that that was the one in which he was specifically laid, but it doesn't matter. Whichever one he was in could not hold him. It is an empty tomb and there is no other persuasive explanation for how it done got empty except that its occupant overcame death and rose from the dead. The second body of evidence to substantiate the resurrection after the empty tomb is are the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord. After he rose from the dead, he revealed himself very much alive, not to one, not to two, but to many different situations, hundreds at a time. You might say, well, yeah, they were expecting it. No, they were not expecting it at all. They scattered like timid, fearful sheep. No, no, no. When you expect something enough, sometimes you could persuade yourself you see it. But they weren't looking for the resurrection of the Lord at all. Empty tomb, post-resurrection appearances. Here's another body of evidence. The transformed lives of the disciples. Good night, folks. They were common, ordinary fishermen. When the Lord Jesus, their Lord, was taken, they left. In fact, one denied him three times. Do you remember this? How do you explain their willingness themselves to be martyred for the faith? Do you put your faith in that which is false? The fraud breaks down when your life is on the line. They said some of them were not even worthy to die in the same fashion as did our risen Lord. They were martyred, every one of them. For the faith. It wasn't misdirected faith. It was faith based on evidence. They saw their Lord risen from the dead. So one of the proofs of the resurrection are the transformed lives of these otherwise meek, timid, fearful fishermen, disciples. And then the fourth body of evidence. Please explain to me how Jews intent on worshiping and meeting with God on the Sabbath, how these Jewish believers moved their day of assembly from Saturday to Sunday, from Sabbath day to Lord's day. Could you please explain that to me? Do you know what the Sabbath is, Shabbat, for Jews down to this very day? What would it take? Maybe the Jewish Messiah to rise up from death on Sunday, the Lord's day. Well, that's just a brief survey. If you're interested, as I say, uh, let me recommend to you messages on our website. They're free. You can download them. You could do whatever you'd like to do with them. I recommend listening. (laughs) No, it's not just blind hope. It's not some fantasy we have. No, 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 no. There's an evidentiary basis for the resurrection of 
of Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, in Aaron's day, many would have had his position. God, therefore, had to affirm, authorize, and clearly declare him and him alone to be the mediator of the old covenant, you see. And so God did so by doing that which was contrary to nature. A dead stick produced life. And so to today, many would usurp the role and position of the Lord Jesus. And so God, therefore, just as much as in Aaron's day, had to affirm and authorize and declare this Jesus alone to be the one designated, qualified to stand in the gap between sinful humankind and a holy God. And this the Father did by doing that which was contrary to nature. Here it is. A dead body came alive. That is contrary to nature. He rose from the dead and thus was distinguished from all other pretenders, you see, to the throne. So then, if someone comes up to you someday, like one of these people on the street, and I hope you're having conversation with people outside the confines of this church. If one of those people came up to you and said to you, do you believe Jesus is the only way to God? I hope you would simply answer by saying yes. And if that person would then say, how can you say that? You should say, I am not saying that. Jesus said that. I'm simply repeating what he said because I believe in what he said. And if that person were then to say to you, why do you believe in what he said? I hope you would say, I believe what Jesus said because what Jesus did backs up what he said. He rose from the dead. If that person said to you, well, then what then did Jesus do? I hope you would say he rose from the dead. Therefore, what he did confirms what he said. What did he say? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, this is pretty clear, no one comes to the father, but through me. Don't cave in today. Don't cave in. There's too much at stake. Don't let the world extinguish the fire. Don't cave in. Truth is more important than so-called toleration. The so-called tolerant people out there are tolerant of everything except what they consider to be your intolerant conclusion that Jesus is the only way to God. Don't cave in. These are the words of Jesus. And folks, what Jesus did validates what Jesus said. He rose up from death just as he said. Listen, Muslim people follow the words of Muhammad. I ask you, what did Muhammad do to validate what he said? Buddhist people follow Buddha. What did Buddha do to validate what he said? Mormon people follow the teachings of Joseph Smith. What did he do to validate what he said? Members of the Unification Church follow the teachings of Sun Myung Moon. What did Reverend Moon do, however, to validate what he said? Secular humanists follow themselves. 
But what did they do to validate what they're telling themselves? And Christians, Christ followers, follow the words of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what is it that he did to validate what he said? Here's the answer. He rose up from death just as he said. That's not true of any of the others I mentioned. Nobody else has done this. Jesus alone has risen up from death. All others are still very much entombed. So his resurrection validates our faith in him alone as the only way to God. So whether the claims of Jesus are too narrow is not the issue. The issue is, are the claims of Jesus true? You understand? Don't cave in when a worldling challenges you with your very narrow perspective on how to get to God. Don't buy that. Say the issue is not the exclusivity of it. The issue is not the narrowness of it, as you call it. The issue is the veracity of it. Is it true? Are the words of Jesus true or not? That's the issue. Put it right back at him. Put it right back at him, don't you see? Listen, there are about uh, 5 billion people in the world, I think. I think. About 80% of them, sadly, believe in gods other than the Christian God. Are we to believe, therefore, in light of those statistics, that only Christians are right? Hang on. Don't buy that when someone throws it at you. Because that's not the right question. The right question is not whether Christians are right. The question is whether Jesus is telling the truth. The answer is an unequivocal yes. He is telling the truth. You see, what Jesus said is validated by what Jesus did. He rose up from death. Don't cave in. Don't compromise. Don't fit in at all costs. Truth, not tradition. Truth, not toleration of every crazy speculative, I think this, I think that point of view. What Jesus said is validated by what Jesus did. Okay, now look, I want to direct you back to number 17. Notice the people's reaction in verse 12 and 13. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses saying, Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who makes an attempt to come near to the presence of holy God, everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, must die. Are we to perish completely? First, they're insurrectionists. And now they're petrified about accessing God. They are overwhelmed by the accurate and legitimate recognition that they don't dare get too close because in comparison to their sinfulness, he is so intensely holy, he's a consuming fire. And when they see how holy other is this transcendent deity, they who've disobeyed, rebelled, and toyed with him, now they say, we must not even get close 
for we have no legitimate, safe, protected means of access. This unapproachably holy God, this consuming fire, surely will devour us. You know what they were essentially saying? We need a means of safe access to this God. We have a need for an intercessor, a bridge builder. We have a need for a mediator. Here is good news. Here is the gospel. God has met our need. God has provided the mediator. God has chosen him, designated him, validated him, distinguished him from all others through resurrection from deadness. He was raised in the power of the very Spirit of God. God has provided the Lamb who was sacrificed and died, and he raised up the Lamb from death to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God so that now that perfect act of sacrificial love serves the purpose of casting out all our fear. So now we come respectfully. He's not our co-pilot. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's creator God. He's Elohim. So we respect him, but we don't fear him in the wrong sense. We respect him, but we know we can even crawl up on his lap because of the access given to us by the one and only way to God, the one and only mediator between God and man, The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, it's really, 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 really good news. Now that the Lord Jesus is our high priest, Aaron simply foreshadowed him. Everything in the Old Testament points to an eventual greater reality. The greater reality is the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus. Now that the Lord Jesus has come as our high priest and granted us the capacity to recognize it, now we, Christians, Christ ones, can boldly approach holy God without fear of death. Uh, Let me read to you Hebrews 4, uh, verses 14 to 16. Listen. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Aaron? No. Aaron was the high priest of an old covenant There's a far better covenant which requires a much more supreme high priest only foreshadowed by Aaron. His name is Jesus. We have a great high priest who has passed through, not the tabernacle made with hands, no, who has passed through the tabernacle in the heavens, the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus, in case you're not sure who we're talking about, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, don't cave in. Since this has happened, since it's true, since it ought not take you by surprise, God introduced the concept in the Old Testament through the person of Aaron. He showed the people there, you can come boldly to the throne of grace. You can access me. You will not be devoured, but you have to come to me, the one true God, the one true way through Aaron, the high priest. It should not be a surprise that foreshadowed 
the intercessory work, the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus. Now that we know him, now that we've come to the Father through him, now that we're loved by him and love him back, now that we're forgiven, now that we're his sons and daughters, hold fast to your confession. No apostasy, no falling away, no caving in. Look at him. I don't know how the majority of the world's population as sincere as they may be. I don't have it all figured out how that breaks down, but I'm not going to let statistics determine truth. I don't care if the majority says all roads lead to almighty God. When God says, no, there's only one way. Hold fast your confession. Jesus is the only way to God. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's the conclusion of the writer of Hebrews. Let us draw near. With fear like the Israelites of old? No. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy And may find grace to help in time of need. Good news. You can charge into the throne room. Find it to be a place of grace. If you come through the blood of one and only. The crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus, he is the only way. Folks, don't you realize if there was any other way to atone for our sin and to grant us alienated and in an adversarial relationship from God, if there was any other way to affect peace between God and man, don't you realize the Father would not have sent the Son to die Do you realize it cost the father a sense of sonlessness? Do you realize it cost the son a sense of fatherlessness? Remember when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Don't you think if there was any other alternative way but that the son would have to die, don't you think father and son would have promoted it? Do you remember when the son said in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not my will, thy will be done. And the will of the father was to resolve the separation between us and him caused by our sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of the sinless one. Don't you realize if there was any other way, if there were manifold ways like these people in the videos suggest, then it would not have been necessary for for Jesus to die. So, folks, as we think about his costly and gracious sacrifice for us, we should not be thinking it to be unfair that there is only one way to God. We ought to be rejoicing that there's any way at all. Do you know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. Buddha said, search for the way. Look for the way. Jesus said, I am the way. He is not one amongst equals. 
He's distinguished, vindicated, validated, confirmed by resurrection from the dead. And as he lives, so too shall you and I. He, the first fruits of life after death. I want to encourage you. If you don't have Jesus as the means of access to God's throne, you're at great risk. You cannot come to him freely. He is a consuming fire in whose presence you cannot stand. Not now, not in eternity. If you do not have Jesus as your mediator between you and God the Father, you shall be forever separated from God the Father. You will live in a state of constant dying. Sadly, you're not terminated. You live forever with needs unfulfilled. Have you been hungry lately? Have you had to wait for 30, 40 minutes before you drive through Burger King? What if your hunger was never satisfied? Have you been tired and couldn't wait to get your head on the pillow? Had to wait for an hour before it happened? What if you were eternally tired? Have you had fears, waiting, yearning for them to be allayed? What if you were left with your fears forever? Have you been lonely? What if your loneliness could never be resolved? Hell are needs eternally unsatisfied. Why do I say that? Because the fundamental needs of the human heart can only be met by the creator of humankind. And if you're alienated by him, you have needs but no satisfaction thereof. I beseech you, take Jesus by the hand who is willing to take you by the hand and lead you into a harmonious forever relationship with the Father, the satisfier of your soul. You can be rich, you can be famous, you can be whatever, and empty as could be on the inside, because there is indeed a hole that can only be filled when the cre- creature is reconciled to the Creator, and the Creator has a way, <laughs> one way, Come to me. All, me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Can I ask you to stand together uh, and uh, invite you to consider meeting with one of our people uh, in that room, uh, Connection Center. We had the privilege, wasn't it, to see a young gal uh, publicly identify with the Lord Jesus through baptism who, uh, on a recent occasion, met her Savior, the way to the Father, in that very room, right on the other side of the wall. Why not you? Why not you? Why not you having the same experience as she? A smile on your face, a new song in your heart, access to otherwise unapproachably holy God, just as if he's your Abba Father and you're his kid. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not the burden of sin? You got plenty of it. I do. We all do. Why not the burden of sin off you 
and onto the one whose shoulders are strong enough to have carried it. This he did when he suffered and died on the cross. Why not a transfer of the guilt of your sin onto him who willingly took it and managed to defeat even the last enemy death so there need not be any dying? No, not for him nor for you who have accepted him. See, he rose from the dead. We would love to meet with you, to pray with you, to chat with you, to have conversation with you. And some of our people will go there. So we'll sing our way out of here. And as we take leave of one another, let me invite you to make your way here to the Connections Center. Think about establishing a connection with the God with whom you are otherwise disconnected. And there is a way, one way only, whereby you can be connected to the Father. And listen, I want to tell you something. And my connection was established in 1973. I've told you that before. I keep doing it because I'm excited about it. I remember the very day. I've never looked back. I don't have any regrets. I'm not looking for a better deal. There ain't no better deal. <laughs> there, there ain't no better deal. I serve a risen Savior. He's in a risen Savior. You see? I serve a risen Savior, not an entombed somebody still looking for the way. I, I serve the one who is the way. And I got to tell you, it's not just eternal life. The Bible promises us something called abundant life. That doesn't mean pain-free life. It just means meaningful, purposeful, not whimsical, not arbitrary, nothing by chance, everything orchestrated, everything according to the design of the one you put your faith and confidence in. I just beseech you, take Jesus as your Savior tonight experiences the riches of all that he has to offer. You see, he lives. He lives, I'm telling you. Christ Jesus lives today. Because he lives, that he lives validates what he said. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives for what reason? Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives risen Savior lives within this little heart.